Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as your Word is declared this morning, May you impart life through your Spirit. We ask that you would meet us here, and we ask that in humble confidence, knowing that you have promised to do so. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. In today's passage, uh, Peter uh, returns again to the idea of suffering and suffering as a Christian. Now, when I say as a Christian, I do not mean just you are a Christian who happens to suffer, but that you are suffering because you are a Christian. You are being persecuted for your faith. This has been the theme that has run throughout this book. We've examined it from multiple different angles throughout this series. And we are to view this persecution um, as an act of faithfulness on our behalf, as Christians. For some time... Christians in the West, especially in this country, really didn't need to worry about that. Now, that's not universally true about Christians in this country. One of the things I had to read in seminary was a journal of an early Baptist preacher uh, in the colonial times who ran around from colony to colony getting poisoned and arrested because he refused to get a license to preach. Religious liberty is something that is rather new and common, and came from the Christian West and even the influence of the Baptists upon it. For much of church history, suffering and persecution were the assumed. The question wasn't if you would suffer as a Christian, but how severe. Specifically in the first and second centuries, Christians were commanded, this was the law of the land, to offer incense to Caesar an act of worship, to worship Caesar. Now, during this time period, some Christians gave in to that pressure. It was like, either offer the incense or die. And some of them gave in, and some did not. Now, throughout the early history of the church, there would be these ebbs and flows of persecution. Sometimes there would be a lot of persecution, sometimes not so much. But eventually, the church was allowed to exist. And then there was this debate within the church. What are we to do with the people who, when faced with persecution, gave in? Who now wanted back into the church? What are we to do with them? When the time of trial came, they failed the test. Now they seem to be showing fruit of repentance. Do we allow them back in? And the church really couldn't agree on that. Were these people really Christians? And what you see here is the tension at the center of the Christian faith. Christian faith is based on grace. The Christian faith is also based on truth. It's a tension we all struggle with. How should we, though, think about 
persecution today and how do we respond? Peter has been dealing with that throughout his letter here and I think what he's doing here is kind of offering us a summary of what he said throughout this letter on persecution and how then we should suffer the reason for hope that we have in the midst of it and even a call to rejoice as you are being persecuted. Peter begins this section by reminding us that suffering should not surprise you or me. Look at verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In the most basic sense, it is not strange for you to face opposition for being a Christian in this world, in this age, at this time. In a very horrific way, it is entirely normal for Christians to be persecuted. Why? Because the kingdom of light is invading and retaking this world, and the kingdom of darkness doesn't like that. This is wartime. You should, be no, or you should no more be surprised to be fired upon in this time of war than if you were a part of the allied invading forces of the beaches of Normandy. Why are they shooting at us? Because you guys are on opposite sides of a cosmic war. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. Christ told us that they hated him, so they will also hate us. We are servants, he is the master, and you and I are not greater than our master was and is. We are not above him. For these reasons, persecution and opposition are somewhat normal. They should not surprise us. Why the stress here on not being surprised? Why is it important that you're not surprised and I'm not surprised when it happens? Well, again, stick with this wartime motif here. Think about wars for a second and battle strategy. Much of warfare is based upon deception. Tricking your opponent. Why do you trick your opponent? Because you want to surprise him. You want to catch him off guard. Whether it's a fake retreat or flanking your opponent, when you surprise them, they lose their balance, they become more vulnerable and easy to defeat. Consider some examples from the world of sports. If you haven't figured this out yet, sports are controlled and simulated conflict. Controlled and simulated warfare. That's what they are. In basketball, for example, you can do a shot fake. Why do you fake a shot? Well, it is to surprise your opponent when you don't actually shoot so that you can go around them. You can do a crossover dribble where you start one way, your opponent thinks you're going that way, and you surprise them by, in fact, going the other way. Think about baseball. The pitcher throws a curveball or a changeup, and it's meant to surprise the batter so that they strike out. So last year, I coached my two oldest sons' football team, and we would run plays to surprise the opponent all the time. We would run what would, would be called a reverse or an end-around reverse. We'd hand the ball off, the kid would run this way, and then he would hand it off to another kid who was running this way because the defense would all go one way, and then they'd be surprised when the ball's actually going the other way. When the kids actually pulled this off, which wasn't always, sometimes there was a fumble and, and, and other things happened, but when the kids pulled this off, the first time we did it, we almost always scored a touchdown. The team was surprised. If we ran the same play again later in the game, we maybe got a first down. 
If we ran it a third time, we would often lose yardage. Why? Because they weren't surprised anymore. They were prepared for it. They were ready. That's what Peter is getting at here. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted. Get ready for it. Don't come into your Christian life operating under the assumption that everyone is going to like you if you're a Christian. That you're going to get along with this world. That everyone will be your friend. Prepare to be persecuted. And in this way, you will not become vulnerable when it happens. You will not be surprised by it. We are living in a time in which we are seeing this play out. People in church were told by several different movements for quite some time that if they just said it the right way, if they were just cool enough, hip enough, if they had enough lights going on in their services, then the world would like them. And so the trial has come, and many have opted to compromise. And what they have shown is that their allegiance is to something besides Christ. They were sold a bill of goods by different Christian movements, and now we're seeing the fruit of it. As resistance to the Christian faith intensifies, brothers and sisters, you need to prepare yourself to see that happen more often. People are surprised. I thought I did everything right. Shouldn't they like me now? No. Don't be surprised. How do we respond to persecution if we're not surprised? Look at verses 13 through 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, you are called to rejoice. This doesn't make sense. Nobody gets uh, punched in the face and says, thank you God. I'm so happy right now. This is an otherworldly, spirit-empowered response to persecution. This is part of how the gospel turns the world upside down. Peter has shown us throughout this letter that God is sovereign over everything. And that includes, and especially in this letter, he's focusing on that God is sovereign even over the suffering and persecution of his church. And so in some sense, we are to consider when we suffer for Christ's sake, that we have been found worthy or capable of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We are in a very real way found in Christ and with him when we suffer for him. It is an honor to suffer for Christ because Christ has suffered for you first. What reasons does Peter give us here for rejoicing? First, that you have that share with Christ in his suffering. This is not a reference that your suffering is somehow completing Christ's salvific work for you but rather it is that you have this share with Christ, that you are actually being found in Him as you suffer faithfully. This is a manifestly good thing. Second, Peter says there is glory in this. That there is the Spirit of glory that rests upon you and that there is glory in suffering for Christ. There is a weightiness 
to it. Something has glory or has weight because it is valuable and worthwhile. When we suffer with Christ, there is this eternal weight of glory placed upon us. For Christ is the Lord of glory. We rightly honor soldiers and even police officers and other individuals who suffer and give up their lives to protect things like freedom, things that are valuable, things that are good. There is a level of glory attained for that individual in offering such a great sacrifice. The same is true when we suffer for Christ in an even greater way. Consider Peter and the apostles from Acts chapters 4 and 5. They're preaching the gospel around Jerusalem, healing individuals. They are arrested, then they are freed, then they are arrested again, and they're brought before the council. Peter says, I'm not going to obey you because we have to obey God and not man. And this is what we read at the conclusion of this incident with the Sanhedrin. When they called the apostles, they beat them. They charged them to not speak the name of Jesus again, and then they let them go. Then they, that's the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. So Peter doesn't write this passage detached from suffering. He knows what it's like to be beat up for following Christ. He knows what it's like to be thrown in prison and then to turn around and rejoice. There's a weightiness and honor to that. Third, along with that honor, you are given the Spirit in a very special way when you are persecuted. All Christians possess the Spirit, and yet the glory we receive comes along with the Spirit of glory, as Peter says here. And Christ promised in the Gospels that if you are persecuted for His name's sake, that the Spirit will come to you in an empowering way to give you the words to speak in that moment. The Spirit is with those who are suffering persecution. Fourth, another reason you can rejoice is you are looking forward to your reward. It says, when His glory is revealed... What sustains a Christian through suffering? That we know the end of the story. We know that Christ overcame death. We know that his kingdom has won and is winning. And so we can operate not in despair for the present, not in giving up in hopelessness, not thinking that this is random or pointless, but knowing that God wins and so therefore do his people. These are all sound reasons to rejoice, but you should also note this, that when we are commanded to rejoice in our suffering, in our persecution, that rejoicing is to a large extent a choice. They literally were beat up, thrown in jail. Like All the leaders hate them. And there they walk out, black eyes, bruises all over their bodies, rejoicing. Not complaining, not despairing, but praising God. Think of the Apostle Paul thrown in jail in Philippi. He too was arrested. He too was beaten. Thrown in jail, his feet locked in the stocks. And throughout the night, what did they do? They prayed and they sang hymns. They worshipped God. 
You know the rest of the story. God shook them free. They didn't go. And the jailer was converted in his whole family. You cannot say that your circumstances prevent you from rejoicing. And I want to be clear here. This doesn't mean that shallow KTIS type of rejoicing. Oh, everything's fine. Right? Some things, everything's aren't fine, and you rejoice anyways. This is a choice that you and I make. We rejoice based upon the foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to make that choice. Some days in this life will be absolutely terrible, and yet you're still called to rejoice. The Christian um, musician Andrew Peterson, I think he describes this reality well in a song aptly titled Rejoice. Now, again, you would think coming into a song like that that it's going to be all light. It's not, it's a dark song. And these are the words he writes When all the peace turns to danger, the nights are longer than the days. And every friend has a stranger's face. Then deep within the dungeon cell, you have to make a choice. Rejoice. Rejoicing is a part of renewing your mind. It's a part of how you walk in faithfulness. And it is also one of the most powerful tools you have to push back the darkness. Go ahead, beat me up. I'm going to rejoice God still. What else, though, is God doing through the persecution of his church? We see in verses 15 through 17 and also a little earlier in the passage that God is purifying his church. He's purifying them. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Trials and persecutions refine the church. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. We've already seen in this letter that the house of the Lord is God's temple. That is the church in this age. That is believing Jews and believing Gentiles. God begins by refining his own people. And so your suffering, God is sovereign over it. You are to rejoice in it. And God is doing something through it. It's not meaningless. It's not random. Peter opened this section by referring to this persecution as a test. And here it's called a judgment. What does he mean by judgment? How is God judging his people through persecution? I think there are two ways to think about this. First, some genuinely do fail this test. The judgment does, in a real sense, refine the corporate or visible church. It exposes that some people who said they were Christian weren't. Trials and persecution make Christianity costly. Therefore, only those who really believe will go through that trial and come out on the other side in faith. Only those who have that spirit of glory resting upon them can pass the test. And so these trials are a judgment or a test that refines the visible church. People fall away, not because they were saved and lost their salvation, but because they were never really saved. They were like those seeds that Jesus talks about in the gospel, planted in the ground, that as the sun comes out, they wither away and they die. Next time you see someone 
who's compromising on the pressure points of the day, Christianity's sexual ethics, know that God is refining the church. When that happens and you see that, especially when it's a famous teacher, you say, well, that guy's not a Christian. I'm going to go listen to somebody else. That should be your initial reaction. Next time you see someone deconstruct their faith, what they're showing you is that they have a different standard besides Scripture by which they are living their lives. And this fiery trial is helping you and me to see, well, this person's not actually saved. The church is being refined. Second, this refining also happens at an individual level. It refines individual Christians. It causes us to grow in the faith. It causes you to put off your old way of life and to put on Christ. The Spirit uses these obstacles to make you more like Christ. They teach you what is important. They teach you to love the gospel even more. When you are suffering, when you are threatened, you start to see what actually matters in life. So what exactly is the judgment that starts in the house of God? It's not so much the judgment in the sense of eternal salvation versus damnation, but it's about the purification of his people. Christians do not need to fear this judgment. That's what I want you to hear. Well, God's going to judge his people first. That's not a reason to fear Peter moves right into this. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He answers in verse 18. If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly sinner? Well, the, the implied answer here is the righteous are indeed saved and the unrighteous will not be saved. They will face God's full judgment. That is also something you should factor in to your equation. It is better to face persecution from men than eternal damnation from God. Those are the options. Those who dis disobey the gospel are not saved. Peter also gives us one more reason to hope in the midst of our suffering. Look at verse 19. Peter writes, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. We are called to entrust our souls to God as we suffer according to His will. We are reminded again that this is not outside of God's control. We are to trust Him through this testing and refining because dark times have a way of messing with us. It's easy to despair when things are going wrong. It's easy to just withdraw and give up. This is often motivated by some form of hopelessness. A belief that good will lose, evil will win, God has forgotten us, or God doesn't care. And then you can slip into depression rather quickly. Consider Psalm chapter 11 for a moment. Psalm 11, um, David is, uh, posed with this, or poses us with this question. What can the righteous do when the wicked bend the bow and the foundations are destroyed. So here's the question that this whole psalm is wrestling, wrestling with. All right, the wicked are appearing to win. The foundations are being destroyed. How do we respond to that? And David alludes to a voice, either real, someone giving him counsel, or a voice in his head that gives him this advice. 
Here's the advice given. Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. So basically, someone is saying to David, hey, these foundations are being destroyed. The best thing you can do is to run away to the mountains. Withdraw. Give up. The evil are going to win. Just run away. What should the righteous do? David offers a different path forward. He says this, The Lord is in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test, test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Let him rain coals on the wicked. David's advice through the Holy Spirit is don't run to the mountains. Don't give up. Remember that the Lord sits on his throne. The Lord is for the righteous. And the Lord absolutely hates the wicked. Can't say that in a lot of evangelical circles, but there it is in the Bible. The Lord hates the wicked. We live in a day when the foundations are shaken and there are plenty of voices out there in a myriad of different ways encouraging us to run to the mountains and to flee and to just give up. They haven't read Psalm 11 or 1 Peter chapter 4. They have become surprised and caught off guard. But the command is simple. Entrust yourself to God. Entrust your soul to God. Know that He reigns. That this is His will. This isn't surprising to Him. And it shouldn't be surprising to us. And Peter gives us a hint here as to why we should trust God. He is the Creator. The faithful Creator. According to to Peter David's and his commentary on this book, this is the only time. I didn't go through the whole New Testament and fact check him on this, but he's probably right since he wrote it in in his commentary. This is the only time in the New Testament that the title creator is used for God. Just once. The concept is used throughout the New Testament again and again, but this is the only time where we read as God as creator. And I admit to you that when I was studying this passage, that jumped off to the page before I even knew that fact about him. Like, why is Peter calling God creator here? Like, of all the titles he could put for God here in this argument, why is it creator? Well, first, it's, he's the faithful creator. You can entrust your, your life and your death to God because he is faithful. But second, Peter is likely alluding to Christ's teaching of God as creator and sustainer in the Gospels, specifically Matthew 6. We read that we are not to be anxious for anything because God created all things. He clothes the flowers of the fields and he cares for the the sparrows and the birds of the air. God is the creator who made all of these things and he upholds all of these things. From the life and death of birds and the life and death of plants in the field, God is concerned with all of them, and therefore you are of much greater worth than them, and God cares for you more. In short, God created you. God gave you life. Therefore, you can trust God with the life that he gave you. You can entrust him. The one who created galaxies and who upholds everything to a subatomic level, you can trust him, even in your persecution. 
you can rest in that God, for He is the same from age to age. His faithfulness never ends, and it is new every morning. The sun rises at His command. Your heart beats at His command. You can entrust Him with your life. One final exhortation from Peter here. That's found at the, uh, the very end of verse 19. You are to entrust your souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Keep doing good. It's been the theme throughout this letter. You are to suffer, but if you are suffering, it's not because you are doing something evil, but you are to be doing good. And when you encounter this suffering or this persecution, it doesn't then give you license to persecute back. You are to keep doing good. The prospect of persecution when we are preparing ourselves for it beforehand and not surprised, should not alter how we are living. It should not motivate you to flee to the mountains or to Florida. It's tempting. It must not motivate us to change our tactics unless our tactics are unfaithful. Rather, we are called to persevere in doing the good works God has prepared for you beforehand. This is the call to suffer as a Christian, following in the footsteps of our Savior. Suffering should not surprise you. It is a part of this age. We are at war, and we will be at war until Christ returns. The Christian who expects or is prepared for that is freed up then to rejoice when it happens. Satan doesn't spend his time targeting people who sit on the couch and do nothing for the faith. He doesn't have to. It is an honor to be identified with our Savior in suffering. We can also see God's hand in refining the church corporately and us as individuals. Through our suffering, we learn what is truly important. We see the wolves for who they are, we see the goats for who they are, and we see God for who He is. And so we suffer and we trust ourselves to the sovereign God who not only willed it, but who is good and faithful and the creator and sustainer of all things. Therefore, Christian, suffer well. Continue on in the good deeds God has prepared for you from the eternity past. Do not be surprised, but praise God through Jesus Christ, who reigns at the right hand of the Father, and in this we rejoice. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you that you are indeed the faithful creator and sustainer of all things. Lord, train us to be ready for the weird looks we might get for being a Christian in this age. For the sly comments, the subtle digs, the straight out full frontal attacks. Lord, may we not be caught off balance, but may we rejoice in these things that we have been found worthy of partaking in the same suffering that our Savior has. Lord, may you strengthen us, for we cannot do this on our own. And teach our hearts in these moments, even in the midst of tears, that we rejoice in who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.